Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is Mark J.T. Griffin, and he made and did all the work, a lot of work on a film he put out in 2021. Title of it is Lawrence After Arabia. I've done a couple shows on Lawrence of Arabia, so people can go back and look through my archive, and I will put a link to the notes to the interview I did uh, about T.E. Lawrence. So this was very fascinating. It's a different take on some of the information I knew. Uh, really interesting book. But uh, Mark J.T. Griffin did. It's an actor, producer, writer, director of the music. So a really auteur job on this film. <laughs> really fascinating. So welcome to the show, Mark J.T. Thanks. Thanks, William. Great to, great to meet you. Um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for agreeing okay. to the interview. And for people who may not have heard your name or, or this project, can you kind of go back about your career and what led up to you making this film? Yeah, I mean, my my background, um, I, I, I sometimes describe myself as a bit of a polymath. My career was uh, has been in what I would call IT. Uh, I did a lot of corporate work running big projects and big companies as a as a as what I call a contractor. Um, but in parallel, um, using the sort of uh, the imagination, the imaginative side of my brain, I've done a lot of theatrical work. So a lot of writing. I, for example, years ago, wrote a biography of Vangelis, the guy that wrote the music for Chariots of Fire, who's just passed, sadly. Uh, but I've written six novels. Uh, I've written some theatre pieces. And uh, a few, about I think it was about 12 years ago, I wrote a radio play. Uh, and the radio play uh, was all about um, uh, Lawrence, the last year of T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia's life. Um, <clears throat> and um, the, the radio play just didn't work as a radio play. And it started to sort of grow as these projects do. And uh, it, it, it morphed into a screenplay. And uh, I worked on it for another oh, five or six years, as you do. And eventually got it to the state where I thought it was a pretty strong screenplay. I sent it around uh, oh, umpteen production companies. Um, nobody wanted to pick it up. I got some good feedback, but, you know, nobody wanted to take the project on. And I kind of set a notional date in my head and said, if this isn't, if it's not picked up by this date, uh, then, you know, I, I'm going to make it myself. So uh, that that's what we did. I'd done some theatre direction before, as I said, quite a bit of writing. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it was 2016 we took the decision to go ahead with the project and we started to raise money mainly from uh, our own pot uh, enough so that if, uh, you know, if it went if, if it went bad, we, we weren't going to be uh, mortgaging our house or anything like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we, we kicked off pre-production in January 2018 and the film was all wrapped up and it premiered, uh, in October, 2021, almost 12 months ago. Uh, we were slowed down, of course, by COVID, uh, and, uh, there was a, there was an idea of putting it out to streaming straight away and we decided against that. We wanted to get it into theatres. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we, um. Uh, we uh, we premiered uh, October 2021. 
Nice. Well, congratulations. Um, yeah, really interesting. For people who may not know the kind of background of T.E. Lawrence, can you talk about what he did in World War One? But he had a very intriguing, interesting life post World War One, right? And I think. He yeah. Was yeah. Um, so uh, T. Lawrence, um, he was a, he was a, a bit of a polymath as well. Um, when he was in his uh, late teens, he was working. After he'd got his degree in uh, archaeology, he, he spoke Arabia, uh, Arabian. He um, uh, his um, uh, thesis was on um, the castles of Syria, the uh, uh, medieval castles of Syria, and he he, and he, had, he about traveled through there, right? So yeah, he, he knew firsthand, learned the language. That's it. So uh, by himself he, too, like he traveled by himself, very. Uh, very yes. Correct. I mean, he did. He did a tour. Uh, very interestingly, uh, a, a year or so before, around France, doing roughly the same thing, and then he repeated the trip, going around, following the route of uh, Coeur de Lyon, Richard the Richard the Lionheart, and then he did the same in Syria. Um, but he was working on a Carchemish, uh, which was a site um, uh, over there with uh, an archaeologist, a famous archaeologist called Woolley. And the war started and he was kind of seconded to uh, and became um, a lieutenant in the, um, uh, the war office in Cairo, where he was basically making maps. Now, it sounds very innocent, but in actual fact, what they were doing in Kargamesh and what, were, what they were doing in Cairo was essentially, essentially spying. They were gathering information uh, ready for, for what they knew was a war that was coming. Um, so at that time, Lawrence had started as a spy. Uh, he was gathering information. He then became a an adjutant uh, working with King uh, with uh, Prince Faisal at the time. And of course, this story is kind of covered uh, in in uh, in three hours by David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia, which you know is one of the best movies ever made. Frankly, um, he uh, at the end of the war. The idea was that he, he, he thought he was fighting for some semblance of, a, 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 of a, an Arabian independence. Uh, sadly, the French and the, uh, the Brits, uh, with a little bit of help from the Americans, basically carved up Arabia into spheres of influence. Um, and uh, he tried, after the war at the Cairo Peace Conference and the Paris Peace Conference, to to help Faisal and Abdullah have some semblance of Arab independence, but it never really happened. And the troubles that we see now in um, the Middle East are essentially planted, the seed was planted at that time when the French and the British carved up Arabia. Right, so those issues were there after World War One, Palestine, uh, yep. and, and T. Lawrence became actually kind of uh, designated as a son of Faisal, so they had a very close relationship, right? And they all kind of felt betrayed, but that that relationship maintained after World War One. He had with that's right. Um, he uh, after World War One, he he, uh, he well, he found out uh, at the very very end of World War One that um, uh, essentially there had been an agreement put in place called the Peak the Sykes Pico Agreement between the French and the, the British. Uh, to 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 have this sort of split of 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 uh, the various Arab nations, um, and he melted into the background. He he left um, 
he left uh, Arabia. Uh, he refused the knighthood uh, from um, the king. He was taken to the king, uh, asked to kneel and uh, realised what was happening and basically stood up and walked out, uh, which is very embarrassing for the king. Um, he... Um, uh, he then um, worked for a few years with, for example, Churchill in the colonial office. And then in the early 20s, um, tried to join the army in the RAF under an assumed, assumed name, uh, T.E. Ross. He was it was found out very, very quickly. And um, to cut a long story short, in the early 20s, he ended up joining the uh, RAF as an aircraftsman. And for the time between uh, then and uh, 1934, uh, 1935, the year of his death, he was working um, uh, at various sites, uh, actually building boats, uh, building very, very fast boats um, as rescue ships, as fast, fast moving boats. Uh, and they are the, you know, the, um, the predecessors of, of our rescue boats that we have now. Um, so he had a fascinating, fascinating career, but all the while trying to stay in the background. In parallel to all of this, of course, he's he's writing. He wrote a book called Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which is a which is essentially the uh, biography of his time in Arabia. A very poetic, very descriptive book. Um, but he was also he was, for example, translating um, uh, the Odyssey. Homer's uh, Odyssey. Uh, he was um, still working on um, another book called The Mint, which is about his time uh, in the RAF. Um, and <clears throat> all the while keeping up friendships. He was friendly with Thomas Hardy, the Dorset writer who wrote Tessa Dervervilles and uh, Mary Casterbridge, uh, Siegfried Sassoon, E.M. Forster. He had some very, uh, the, the Shaws, T.E. Shaw. Uh, and um, of course, he changed his name to try and disappear into the background to T. E. Shaw, taking the name from his friend George Bernard. Um, very friendly with George Bernard Shaw and Charlotte Shaw. So um, in 1935, in February, um, he essentially was retired from the RAF. He was only in his mid 40s. Um, and he really didn't know what he was going to do with his life. But from that point on, February 1935, he started to rebuild some of the bridges that he'd been that he'd had before. So, uh, for example, in that first couple of months, he visited. Um, uh, he he talked to Churchill. He talked to the to to the Secret Service. He was in communication with the Arabs. He started to talk to his friend Williamson, uh, Henry Williamson, who was. Uh, the author of a book called Tark of the Otter, a uh, very famous British author, about connections to uh, Mosley and the British fascists uh, and, and a possible meeting uh, with Hitler to try and avert a Second World War. Um, and it was that, uh, that there were these things that were going on. Uh, in the middle of May 1935, 13th of May, he was riding his bike. He'd gone to local village from the cottage that he lived which is less than a mile away posted some letters sent a telegram to Williamson saying yeah great idea about uh, having a meeting um uh, let's meet up soon um and on his way back 
the story goes that uh, he uh, crashed into the back of two boys on bikes. Um, at the time, there was one. Uh, there were a number of witnesses that saw a black car going in the opposite direction that appeared to interfere with Lawrence. And um, so always at the time, there was a rumor. The inquest said it, it was an accident, but it was, you know, the inquest was held the day after, pretty much the day after his uh, death, funeral the same day as the inquest. Um, it was all uh, secret service all over the place. Um, and the place was shut down. And there was a lot of rumors about it being not an accident, but an assassination because of the things he was starting to get into. Um, for he a, was always we, a f figure of high repute in the whole country, right? So everybody... Yeah, he, he, he had... Heroic. He had, he had a profile in, in Britain um, for for that period, even when he, he was, you know, he had left Arabia, had nothing to do with Arabia, and was, you know, trying to be this uh, anonymous soldier in, in, the, uh, in the RAF. He he was um, had a profile. There was a story pretty much every day in the paper about him, and he had a profile almost like you know he's well beloved, almost like Princess Diana in a way. Um, he was always in the newspapers, always rumored about what he was doing. Um, he was posted. They tried to get him away to India um, in 1927, and almost immediately uh, the Russians accused him of spying. And indeed, he he was uh, spying in the north of India. Uh, in Afghanistan, and they very, very quickly shipped him home uh, to get out of that embarrassment. But they uh, offered him like the top position, right? Viceroy in India. Yeah, they 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 offered him a number of positions, and he turned them all down. You know, he, he turned down this, you know, this knighthood. He turned down uh, any any um, uh, real job. He 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 was quite happy, uh, basically getting his hands dirty building building these speedboats. Um, but all the while in the background, writing, writing um, um, uh, the, the, the various books that were eventually published. I mean, the story behind Seven Pillars was he'd written a manuscript and uh, he'd left it on the train. He changed trains in Reading Station and left the manuscript on the train. Uh, lost forever. Hey, if that ever turns up, it'd be worth a lot of money. Um, but it, he basically had to start it all over again uh, and rewrite and rewrote the whole thing. Um, so um, yeah, the, the, there'd always been a rumor, uh, always been rumors and stories uh, about um, the, the the you know his death uh, being an assassination rather than an accident, a simple accident. Um, he was an experienced motorcyclist, right? Like this was somebody who was used to people said i mean i think you mentioned in your film like people knew that he was skilled like yes yes he, he he was riding he was riding the rolls royce motorcycle of the day what, what was known as a bruff superior ss 100 they're handmade motorbikes made by a guy called george bruff who had a little factory in nottinghamshire and um he did he never bought one of his bikes they were always gifts either from bruff or for example from uh, george bernard shaw um, and through his career, he had about six of them. And um, he was a very experienced motorbike uh, uh, motorcyclist. Um, he, you know, again, when you talk about him in Dorset, people will talk where, where, where he lived, where his cottage, Clouds Hill, was. 
uh, people will say, oh, yes, he was just a mad Irishman that used to ride around the lanes far too quick. And others who said, well, you know, he knew where he was. I mean, specifically the road between Clouds Hill, where he, he lived and the village of Bovington, less than a mile. He knew that road like the back of his hand. Um, it's a very at the time it wasn't tarmac as we would know it was just like a gritted track very very unforgiving if you break hard on that surface right. um, and you said that he was very regular though so he would take his rides at certain times right yeah yeah he um, um, when he left when he left the uh, the Royal Air Force uh, in February 1935 he would have been under surveillance um, at the time, of course, up until that point, he was uh, under the auspices of military law, the, you know, the Official Secrets Act. So he was kind of um, um, uh, caged at that point. As soon as he left, as soon as he left the RAF, that was it. He was a civilian and free to do what he liked. Now, one of the questions, of course, at the time when they started to investigate the, the crash, within, within minutes of the crash, there were Secret Service operatives at the hospital. Um, there were, uh, the, the, his cottage was searched and closed down by the Secret Service. Um, uh, the um, investigation was undertaken by the Secret Service and the military, even though he had been a civilian for, for nearly 11 weeks. Um, so there were a, a lot of suspicions that, um, you know, the, the whole thing had been had been closed down. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you how I got into it. Um, I got into if you if you've seen the film, the very opening scene of the film is a little boy going into a church where Lawrence's effigy is um, his friend, Eric Kennington, carved this this sculpture of him lying in state like a medieval warrior we have a lot of those in, in english churches and they carved lawrence in that state um eric kennington created it he tried to get this thing uh, into uh, the westminster abbey st paul's salisbury cathedral eventually it ended up um in in this tiny church in in wareham and i went in there when i was about 10 years old not knowing anything about Lawrence at the time and uh, this old man was polishing it and I asked you know who he was was there a dead body in there the usual stuff that 10 year olds ask and uh, he said um, yeah you know he died in a crash uh, in Bovington and I said oh was it an accident and he said uh, not all accidents are accidental and that little little trigger was enough for me to kind of start looking at his life, visiting his sites, reading everything I could. Um, you know, I've got a quite a library of Lawrence books. Um, and I think it was probably when I was in my mid thirties, I'm in my mid sixties now, it suddenly clicked. I read the inquest, the transcript of the inquest. And it struck me that the boy's statement, that the, there were two boys involved that he crashed into the back of that the boys' statements were parrot fashion. They had been, it, it, they, it wasn't somebody standing up and giving uh, and, and answering questions. It was a, like a prepared statement. And that started to get me think, thinking. And the more I got into it, the more I found more out. Um, one of the key pieces of evidence was that um, there was black paint 
found on the petrol tank of Lawrence's car, uh, of Lawrence's bike, and on the handlebars. And when you look at the damage to the bike, the damage to the bike is conducive to, to it being struck by something. And, of course, one of the witnesses who gave evidence, uh, Eric Catchpole, said he saw this black car pass um, uh, Lawrence and then Lawrence going out of control. Uh, and that that all of that information was very suggestive to me at the time. But as I got more and more into it, it just struck me that there is very, very little evidence that it was an accident and a lot more evidence to say that that something was going on, that there was there was uh, uh, lots of reasons to get rid of him, lots of motives to remove him because it would have been an embarrassment. Uh, and um, uh, the the evidence of the damage to the bike, the evidence of the witnesses all point to a, uh, an assassination, probably by the Secret Service. And who was his enemies? I mean, what were people concerned about? Like, why was he considered dangerous? OK, so I, the, the, there's been um, there was a historian back in the 80s. Uh, 70s, 80s, called Rodney Legg, who was a local journalist. And he, it was kind of like his hobby. He was picking away at it for quite a long time. And, um, you know, I started to take some of his stuff and build on it and research it a, a little bit more. And I think there are three things that, that stick out. First of all, the connection to the black shirts. There was, there was, he'd started to either look at joining or infiltrating, I think more likely, the, the Black Shirts and the Mosley. Now, Mosley uh, and the Black Shirts were the British fascist organisation who in 1935 were trying at the time to uh, connect with Hitler. And one of the, one of, uh, uh, of course, Hitler was growing in power at that time. He was also an Anglophile. And the idea was that Hitler might uh, you know that there, there was a war coming and maybe connecting with Hitler with somebody famous with a profile like Lawrence uh, might um, you know avoid a war and of course Lawrence who'd lost two brothers and two two of his best friends in the first world war would have been desperate he was a I think he was a pacifist by that time um, would have been desperate to avoid it and a meeting if it was going to mean a meeting with Hitler that would have that would have um, he, he'd have done it uh, but of course, if you think about the history now, um, you know, not long after 1936, um, our new king, Edward VIII, uh, who, of course, abdicated, met up with Hitler. And there's this film uh, that we've only known about in the last few years where uh, he's actually, um, you know, the, doing the Nazi salute and shaking hands. And of course, that was extremely embarrassing. And if Lawrence had met Hitler, uh, Hitler, and that would have been on the newsreels, extremely embarrassing. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, at the time, uh, the, the Arabs were starting to revolt against the Jewish migration to Palestine. The original Balfour Agreement was meant to be five or 6,000 people per year. In the years 30, uh, 30, I think it was 33, 34, 35, there'd been something in the order of thirty-five to 40,000 arriving and uh faisal king faisal now um was very uh concerned about this because it was starting to change the nature of palestine and the nature of of that area 
and he complained in 1934 to the British government. Um, and after his complaint, he stopped off in Switzerland for his um, his health cure, his treatment, and he died there on the day after he arrived. Um, you know, suggestive that they they wanted to get rid of him. Anyway, that that continued. The situation in Palestine got worse and worse. And in 1936, um, the year after Lawrence died, there was a huge uprising which was put down extremely violently by the British. So the suggestion is that uh, Lawrence was in contact with the Arabs uh, and saying, look, I'll do anything that uh, you want. I can maybe be a figurehead and help and, and help negotiation or something. So again, if Lawrence had done that, extremely embarrassing. Um, so the, the final thing that Lawrence was uh, into, uh, and this is quite well documented, is um, there were suggestions um, at the time that they reorganized the Secret Service. At the time, the Secret Service was almost like an old boys club. And knowing that a war was coming, they needed reorganization with the various um, elements of, of intelligence. So the police, uh, Secret Service, Special Branch, um, MI5, MI6, bringing all that together under what they call a directorship. Now, uh, the suggestion was because Lawrence was a spy and took no nonsense, he should head the directorship. Now, with Lawrence's background, the guy that ran the Secret Service at the time was a guy called Kell, uh, Swaldegrave Vernon Kell. And Kell founded the Secret Service back in 1911. So if you can imagine, he's run the shop for 25 years. And then somebody comes along and says, look, you're going to get a new boss. It's this guy, T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, who, of course, rumoured to be gay, a masochist, uh, a masochist, you know, all of these things. I think something in Kel's head would have popped. And um, so I think there were things that where Lawrence crossed the line and potentially that line was crossed the day that he sent the telegram to Williamson agreeing to a meeting about a potential uh, meeting with Hitler. And um, so the directorship, the Arabs and the black shirts, those are the three things that um, the British establishment, who didn't like him anyway, uh, would have done something about um, and probably crossed the line to, um, uh, to to get rid of him. So it was just kind of this antagonistic, he was sympathetic to the Arabs. Yeah. Zionists or Jews at that time maybe yeah. saw him as a, a threat or, you know. He, he was, you have to think of his background. He was... Um, um, he was essentially a, a, um, an Irish, he was, he, I'll use the word, he was an Irish bastard. And that's the way that they would have thought of him in the British establishment. His father, Chapman, uh, fathered five sons through uh, his family's governance. Gov it's like her maid or something. like a That's right. She was, she was basically the governess of the house. Tried to he, uh, Chapman tried to divorce his wife. His wife said no. Um, they uh, they left and uh, sort of had a very a nomadic lifestyle around. Um, they lived in Jersey, northern France, um, uh, southern England. <clears throat> Eventually, when Lawrence was in his early teens, um, in Oxford, where he was educated and went to university. 
But Lawrence didn't know about this background at all. He always thought his name was Lawrence until he's, he was 16 and then found out about it. And I think that created quite a rebellious spirit. And, you know, everything about him, he was a loose cannon, very much his own man, you know, refusing a knighthood. I mean, I've, I've only found out in the last few months that he actually was awarded a Victoria Cross, which um, he, he, um, he didn't accept. But he's he was exited. Uh, it's a classic story. He's not a team player. No, yeah. a very good, very good discussion. Not a team player. Yeah, he, you know he, um, you know he was um, when they took um, uh, Damascus, for example. The Australians got there first, but uh, it was um, uh, Lawrence and the Arabs who kind of bypassed them and started to try and build up some sort of. Um, government in the week or so before Allenby, who was Lawrence's boss, if you think about it, uh, got there. So, no, no, he was, uh, yeah, definitely not a team player. Like a rival. Even Allenby's yeah. going up the coast. Yeah. He's going up through modern-day Jordan towards Damascus. And one of the aspects a lot of people don't know about T. Lawrence is his writing skills were really first-rate. I mean, he was a superb, I would call him a you know, master of the English. Oh, yeah, he was... Um, his, I mean, Seven Pillars of Wisdom is a hard read. It's a tough read. Uh, I mean, I've only read it uh, twice, and it, it's taken me about, it's the sort of book that you read about three or four pages, uh, and you stop and take a breath and a stiff whiskey and then carry on. You know, it's a, it's a tough book, very poetic. Um, a lot of people said that um, it's also questionable in terms of his, uh, of the truth of it, um, uh, but um, you can't you can't really fault the English language in it. It's fantastic, well, very well written. The other one, the Mint and stuff, you know. So he's writing yeah. a lot. Off, he's like, uh, and they, he was being followed. He he in the film you have him. He has the knowledge that somebody's going into his cottage and rifling through his stuff. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, as I said, from the time it's inconceivable, given Lawrence's um, connections, which is which are kind of illustrated in the book, actually, a lot better than the film. Um, the uh, he's um, uh, he, it's inconceivable that he wasn't being followed, being he was under surveillance. And I think I think as soon as he left the RAF. They started to watch what he was doing. And the more it went on, the more they, you know, they were talking loose cannon, uh, uncontrollable. This is going to be an embarrassment. We need to do something. And, you know, I think there was a, you know, they were just biding the time until uh, there was a point they said, right, you know, we, we need to do something about this. And I don't think it would have been what I would, you know, a, 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 a conspiracy to kill is, is, you know, I think as Oliver Stone says, it's not something where everybody sits in a room and say, yes, let's get rid of him. It's very much a sort of nod. Yeah. OK, I'll leave it to you. Let me know when it's done. Um, and I think the only organization who would have had the um, the resources, the people, uh, the time to do that would have been the Secret Service under Cal. And that's why I think the finger firmly points towards Cal and the Secret Service. And then, so then it all comes back. Churchill becomes PM. Kel gets fired. So yes. Kind of a so, so, yeah, I mean, and, and Churchill was a very good friend of Lawrence. 
Uh, Churchill is a very um, ambiguous character, I think. He, you know, in uh, in Britain, uh, you know, maybe the outside world see him as a as a hero, you know, a guy that won the the World War Two. But in actual fact, he has a very dark and cloudy background. Uh, you know, there was, um, you know, uh, um, uh, in India, he diverted food, which cost the lives of 10 million people. Uh, Kenya, the things in, in even in Wales, which they're talking about now, uh, riots in Wales in for miners where the miners were starving. And he basically send in, sent in the troops to quell it. Um, so a very ambiguous character, and I th think um, he was a friend. But there was a, there was very much a sort of um, um, an alliance between Lawrence and Churchill because they had, they both felt that their future had been affected by their their parents, by their back, by his background. You know, Randolph Churchill and uh, he, uh, he, um, 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 what was her name? Gosh, oh, she was American, right? Had she had a terrible reputation, mm -hmm. so uh, and I think Churchill thought that had affected his career, as did Lawrence. You know, Lawrence felt that you know because of his background, his career had been affected. Um, but and maybe, sorry, please continue. Well, I was going to say, but maybe that was the, you know, the huge well, railway sleeper chip on his shoulder that made him what he was. You know, sometimes those are the things that that make him. And you mentioned the book. Like I watched the film. Can you talk about the uh, book, the title, and what else people can find in it? Yeah, yeah. I, I um, while what what happened was while the film was being made, even before that, of course, I was. I, I was using bits from my notes to to make the film. So, of course, you know, the way that the uh, crash is depicted in the film is only a few minutes in the film. You know, you it's it's not enough to, uh, as we say, um, it's not enough to um, uh, really take anything away from it other than the, what, what happened and then showing the aftermath. And I always felt that it needed something more and one of the original ideas was to do a documentary. But in order to do a documentary, which just focuses on the crash and sort of pulls that apart a bit more, um, I felt I needed a book. So the book started to grow. And by the time I'd made the film, I got a first draft of a book. Now, the book is now called Who Killed Lawrence of Arabia? Uh, it, it was literally out in the last few uh a uh, few days. Oh well, wow. congrats! Uh, so, um, it, it and it and basically what it does, it looks specifically at the crash. For example, using um, an accident forensic to look at the damage on the bike, how that could have got there, um, various witness statements. It looks at um, you know what happened uh, in the run up to the crash. So it looks at the suspects, the motives. You know, just like a murder, in, in any murder, it's who benefits, who gains. So the book looks at who are the suspects, looks at his connections, um, and then uh, looks at the aftermath and, and what happened. You know, there was, uh, for example, if you look at the inquest, on the morning of the inquest, uh, Ralph Neville Jones, the uh, coroner, uh, basically said, got, a, got a call uh, saying... Um, um, not sure whether it's going to be there, but uh, take a look. Um, he, uh, it's probably on my website. Actually, is, be is the better one, Lawrence After Arabia. Um, 
uh, in the um, um, what, what what happened was um, on the morning of the inquest, uh, Ralph Neville Jones basically got a call from a senior government official, basically saying, "Wrap it up, accidental death." Uh, two o'clock. There's a train of of uh, dignitaries coming from London to this little village uh, for the funeral, so it better be wrapped up and done. So, in his opening statement, he basically says, "I, you know, I, I, uh, I've looked at uh, what we have, and I, I think at the end of it, you'll agree it's probably an accidental death." And and that was at the very very start of the inquest. So, uh, there was no effort ever to make to find a black car. Um, the um, catchpole was questioned. Um, the sad thing about catchpole was after the um, the inquest, because he stuck to his story rigidly, the papers tried to do a hatchet job on him. Um, and and uh, uh, but all the evidence I've seen is he was, you know, he was straight arrow. Um, there, there were other deaths surrounding T.E. Lawrence, too. That's always kind yeah, of... Yeah, well, Catchpole, Catchpole was, was immediately shipped off to uh, another... Uh, shipped to abroad. He ended up in Egypt, and in 1940, July 1940, he, he shot himself. He committed suicide, and that was... Um, um, and I always think it was the pressure of being taken away from his family. Um, yeah, so, there yeah. There was another Arab guy, right? Yeah. I beg pardon? There was another Arab guy who got hit by a car. Yeah, well, Faisal, Faisal, um, uh, he was, um, he he went to Switzerland, and uh, it looks like he was poisoned. The funny thing is, the manager who found his body died of the same poison. Okay. So, what is going on there? You know? So, um, yeah, he it was a he was a dangerous guy to be around. Very dangerous. And where's the best place for people to watch Lawrence after Arabia and get the book? Well, if they go to if they go to my website, uh, which you've got up there, that button in the top right hand corner, if they click on there, that will take you to Vimeo, and you can watch it on Vimeo. But it's also on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's also now available on. Um, so yeah, there's a few links there that you can go to. Vimeo, um, Amazon Prime, yeah, director, the director's cut I quite like because it sort of tightens the story quite nice. Um, there's also um uh the dvd is now out and i've made the dvd so you can watch it in any region it's region free so if you buy it watching the states in australia or anywhere it's region free um if you go to shop you can um on, on that button there um william yeah that's good there's the book uh the book is whoops there it is there you go that's the book and that's like a snip, uh, screenshot from the film. So yeah, correct, correct. Yeah. And yeah. the best place to contact you is through your website, Lawrence. Yeah, if you could, you've, uh, there's a click on there, and that there's an email that will come straight to me if people want to want to reach out, uh, either by the book, the DVD, or ask me any questions. I'm quite happy for people to contact me. Often, what happens is people will will contact me and say, "Oh, did you know that?" Um, which is quite interesting. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's been a fascinating project. The, the idea is now the book's out. I'm talking to the crew that made, uh, the film and the idea is maybe to, to get a documentary made during 2023. So we'll just see if we can raise the money and, uh, and get it done. Keep an eye out for it. And again, the name of the book is different than the film. The film yeah. is Lawrence after Arabia. Yeah. Lawrence of Arabia. 
the director, author, writer, musician is Mark J.T. Griffin. And yeah. I will put all the links to your stuff in the show notes. That'd be great. Thank you very much, awesome. William. Thank you. Take care. A really great talk. I really appreciate it. Okay. Cheers. Stay Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Stay there. Stay there.